Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. This episode, we look at 2012's John Carter. I don't have much of a personal history with the John Carter of Mars property, but I have been a fan of the pulp genres, specifically pulp sci-fi and fantasy, for as long as I can remember. I was a Tarzan fan as a kid, so I knew the name of creator Edgar Rice Burroughs, but I hadn't gotten around to reading any of his so-called Barsoom series, which featured the character of John Carter and his Martian adventures. When the big screen adaptation, a long, long gestating Hollywood project, finally saw fruition in 2012, I prepared myself for the movie by reading the first Barsoom novel, A Princess of Mars. Despite its antiquated prose and cultural attitudes, I enjoyed it well enough, though I didn't think it could be translated, at least not as it was, to a box office tentpole, and certainly not one for Disney. Add to that a relative unknown in the lead and some truly terrible marketing, and I had some concerns. The movie came out and the reviews were mixed, but right away the narrative on the film focused laser-like on how it was going to be a bomb and a big one. Always one to revel in an expensive train wreck, I went with a friend to see it at the Vista Theater in Hollywood, prepared for the worst. Right away I recognized that the mythology was shockingly dense for a mainstream event movie, and I could feel the audience and my friend slipping out of director Andrew Stanton's grasp. By mid-movie, my friend had had enough and went out to make phone calls, but I found myself appreciating the film's commitment to its pulpy roots. I ended up enjoying the spectacle and even Taylor Kitsch's performance as John Carter, but I certainly wasn't mystified that it wasn't tracking to be a big hit. Some people were, however, and on my way out of the lobby after the movie, I heard one patron, a middle-aged man, talking to the concessionist, bemoaning the fact that the movie was bombing even though he felt that it was great and really honored Burroughs' source material. If only the movie had been marketed better, if only those soulless Hollywood suits had let Stanton put Mars in the title, this thing would have been the cultural juggernaut it deserved to be, right? Well, I'm not so sure. But that's what we're here to discuss today on Tenpole Trauma. The catastrophic failure of Disney's John Carter. Okay, I'm Sebastian, and I'm here with Chris. Hello. And Rodney from the Pod Forsaken podcast. Hey, Sebastian. Good to be back. Yeah, welcome back, man. Do you want to pimp your podcast again, or is once enough? 
<laughs> I'll do it real quick. If you, uh, Pod Forsaken Horror Podcast, we do weekly episodes where we review obscure horror movies. So if you love horror and you're always looking for like, like something awesome that's not easily found that probably didn't play in a theater, come check out our podcast. What's the last thing you saw that you'd recommend? Oh, uh, His House on Netflix. Do you know about it? It's no. Nope. It it's about uh this these a married couple who are refugees from South Sudan who flee to London. Oh, okay. And they um they're on their you know like trial period essentially, and so the government puts them in this house that is haunted, mm. and like they can't leave the house because if they do, they'll be shipped back to South Sudan. Oh, okay. It's sort of uh it's like sort of like The Shining with with like a with a touch of political messaging in it. It's great. Okay, awesome. That actually sounds pretty good. I like that that uh, high concept premise. Today we are here to talk about John Carter, the infamous 2010 uh, mega bomb directed by Andrew Stanton, uh, who was a director of Pixar films. He had not done, to my knowledge, a serious live action film until this fateful fateful production. Now, the property of John Carter, which began as a novel in 1912, so 100 years before this movie came out, this uh, pulp novel series by Edgar Rice Burroughs was created. It started in the book Princess of Mars, and um, you know there were, there were several other uh, novels that followed. And so the title should have been John Carter of Mars, but apparently Disney got cold feet about that title because there had been some infamous Mars-related bombs prior, like moms. Mars needs moms, right? Yeah. Right, right. That's why they had, in their infinite wisdom, they said, let's just call it John Carter, and that way no one will have any idea what this is at all. <laughs> I remember seeing the uh, billboards, and I mean, I knew about the the John Carter property because, um, the John Carter of Mars property, because... I like pulp sci-fi. Uh, of course, I'm a fan of uh, Star Wars and all sorts of science fiction um, films. Just pulpier the better for me personally. And this property has been a ruthlessly stripped mind from other, you know, more contemporary and more famous creators. We can talk about it as we go. There are definitely moments in this film where you're like, I recognize this from somewhere. Yeah. Did you guys have any sort of awareness of this film before it came out? I saw the trailer, so I, I, I knew the movie was coming. I had never heard of the book series john carter or i think the first one's called what a princess of mars correct but like i've never heard of this property before yeah at all so you didn't have any idea what it was no though obviously edgar rice burroughs is most famous for tarzan yeah. which i knew this was but his other start, big thing right but no like to me this was just like i saw the trailer and i was like what the fuck is john carter of mars i remember hearing more about it bombing than it ever actually coming out and i feel like sebastian you are the only reason i've ever thought about this movie more than once. This is uh, a theme that's coming up in a lot of these podcasts. <laughs> I didn't even ever think about this stupid movie until you made me think about it, Sebastian. Yeah, the first time I saw it was on your recommendation. And I remember, you know, it, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but, you know, enjoying it well enough that I was willing to give it a, a second run. But, um, you know, it was definitely because of your recommendation um, that I saw it in the first place. Now, were you guys aware of the the sort of hubbub around it bombing massively. Oh yeah. That, that is the one thing I, cause I, this was 
watching it for your show is the first time I've ever seen it. Yeah. But I was quite aware that it lost, like, I think the term is a fuck ton of money. Right? Yes. <laughs> the technical term, yes. I think I read at the end of the day, it basically Disney lost about 80 million on it. Yeah, that's a lot of money to lose. <laughs> yeah. Think of how many times Disney could have you killed for $80 million. Yeah, that's, well. They could probably kill you 80 million times. You think they would spend a million on me? I'm, I'm flattered. <laughs> You're worth a million dead to me, Rodney. <laughs> How about the director, Andrew Stanton? Did you guys have any sort of familiarity with him? No, not at all. You actually telling me that he worked in animation totally makes sense now, but I definitely was not tracking him at the time and wasn't like, let's go see this movie because of the director. I mean, I've heard his name. It's like one of those names that like, if someone said it to me, I'd be like, I'm, he sounds like a writer or a director. But until someone told me, what he did, I did not know him. Wally and Finding Nemo were sort of his his claim to fame. He also did like a Bug's Life, I think. And um, but yeah, it was sort of Finding Nemo was the thing that was his big big hit. And then after this, he tucked his tail between his legs and went back to the Nemo franchise and did Finding Dory, and you know redeemed himself uh -huh. in Disney's eyes. But. It was either that or director's jail, I think. But this had been a movie that had been in development for an incredibly long time, almost as long as the property existed. Interesting fact, in the, um, I think it was the 1930s, once Disney started getting um, their animation studio up and running, this almost became an animated feature, like in the 30s. Oh. And there, you can actually find some artwork from it and I think there's even like you know like a little like sort of uh test footage and then all throughout the years it keeps popping up like a bad penny I guess Robert Rodriguez almost did it at one point and this was not that long ago this was maybe in, in the 2000s at some point but it got really close to being made by Robert Rodriguez and it almost got made by John Favreau wow yeah and John and John McTiernan in the 80s oh really John McTiernan wow yeah, I think when he was doing it, Tom Cruise was attached and maybe Julia Roberts. Okay, well, that makes sense Wow, in the 80s. Would so. that have been a rated R version, like a harder <laughs> version? Because I, I can't see McTiernan making a, a soft version. Clearly, it never got to a phase where they gave it a rating, mm. So, but probably. Many times this came up to be uh, produced and didn't quite get there. Finally, Stanton, I guess, had the right pitch and Disney bid on it and, and they made it. His pitch was like, I've made you a billion dollars. Let me do it. Well, and so with that, why don't we get into our discussion of uh, John Carter? Now, the film, like a lot of these sort of epic science fiction films, it opens with a sort of uh, voiceover. It's from the character of Tars Tarkas, who we will later meet in the film as played by Willem Dafoe, sets up this idea that we don't know what Mars really is. It's really this other place called Barsoom. Now... I think in a way, this is already starting off the movie in a wrong foot because we do know things about Mars now. So <laughs> right off the bat, it's nudging your credulity in the ribs already. It's, it comes back to, again, like what we were talking about with Dune, where what is the right amount of exposition to give somebody at the beginning? Mm -hmm. And I also question, you know, something that's written... That sci-fi that it was written in, what do you said, 1912 was when the yes pre-moon landing? I'm just curious to like, yeah, if modern audiences can get in the same headspace as somebody who was writing science fiction in 1912. And I think that might be part of the problem. Yeah. I like the opening. 
any kind of big movie like this, I'm willing to just give you the first 10 minutes of whatever nonsense narration you need to just put on the fucking plate so I can eat it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, okay, here's Mars. Oh, you call it Barsoom? Okay. And, uh, oh, there's, like, these two tribes on Mars, and they're fighting. And they've been fighting forever. And I think that's all we really... Oh, and then you learn that, like, McNulty... I forget his character's name. The dude who plays McNulty in... That's all Empire. I think of him as. His name is Sab Than, but let's just call him McNulty. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so McNulty meets Mark Strong, who is, like, a bald dude who gives him this, like, laser weapon yeah. that looks like... I don't even know. I don't, like it looks like a coral reef that he wears on his arm. I had the hardest time totally. describing it in my notes. I'm like, I, I, it's interesting at least. I mean, that's that's not it's unique. I'll give it that. Yeah. You know, I got it. I was like, okay, he's the bad guy. He's got a laser weapon. He's working with that guy. Here we go. We get this opening scene uh, where the you know Mark Strong gives uh, McNulty this weapon, and you know we have some idea that this isn't going to be a good thing for Mars. And then we go right into the framing device of the movie, which is basically John Carter, the character of John Carter in the eight, like 1800s, like mid to late 1800s. It starts with this whole idea that he has died and that he's sending this letter to his nephew, Ned. Ned is revealed to be Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is one of those situations where we're to, to assume that the movie that we're going to see inspired him to write the book and, you know, that whole thing, which we've seen before. We get this sort of high production value 1800s stuff, and we get Taylor Kitsch as John Carter. How do you guys feel about Taylor Kitsch? Um, I feel really bad for him after this movie because, <laughs> you know, this drove a stake right through his career, and, you know, he's a handsome, attractive man. There's no denying that, but... I feel like his acting in this role anyway uh, is very limited. It's more of like a, you know, tough guy Clint Eastwood thing, which I think he's pulling off, but um, there's not really much to the John Carter character for me. And I don't see a ton of charisma, you know, streaming out of him. And it, it feels to me, this whole movie, honestly, feels like just a B-movie clone of Avatar. It's all just in the awake of Avatar, all the technology, everything, you know, they have this bland. Well, I'm sure that's what got it, the green light. Exactly. So it, to me, it just feels like this is an Avatar wannabe to try and cash in on that. And he's fine. Yeah, I'm with Chris. He, he's like, he's okay. Like, he's not terrible. I wasn't laughing at him, but he also wasn't like winning me over, you know? Mm. Like, he does an A-OK job. And I couldn't tell if it's like the movie doesn't give him enough moments to really act. But when he's at, when he is acting, he's just sort of like grunting his lines. Mm, and yeah. like, I was like, I get it. Yeah, he's 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 a tough guy, you know? Oh, that's John Carter. But like, look, I don't really know the rest of this guy's work. My wife told me he played Gambit in like the first X-Men Wolverine he's movie. He's famous for a character on Friday Night Lights, the football show. He was right. like kind of, he was like the rebellious football player that all the girls swooned over. So I'm, I'm willing to bet he's probably good on that show, which I've never seen. Yeah, he is good on it. At the end of the day, I think part of the thing I was curious about is like, why did this movie lose so much money? And I think step one is they cast that guy to be the lead. Yeah. When if I don't know who he is, he shouldn't be the lead of your $250 million movie. I always thought that uh, Hugh Jackman would have knocked this out of the park. Wow, yeah. And he fits the bill as to the way the character is sort of described in the books. I'm sure it's just they couldn't get Hugh Jackman and Hugh Jackman was just like, I ain't doing this. <laughs> 
another sort of problem with the character is that the character is an, and I don't know if you picked up on this, he's an ex-rebel soldier. So he's a confederate. Oh. So he, you know, he fought on the side of the Confederates. Right. And in oh. the in the books, he's got that like Southern gentlemany kind of thing. You know, I don't think the movie wanted to really highlight it because the idea of a ex-Confederate soldier being your hero probably is not going to endear the Disney target audience to him. So I think that might have been a reason why they just decided like, let's just do like Rodney says. You know the grunty Clint Eastwood type of role. I agree with everything that you guys are saying. He doesn't def- he doesn't do anything necessarily to distinguish himself, but I-, I do think he pulls it off. Yeah, he he pulls it off. I think I think you're saying it very well. I, I like he's not my first choice for the role, but nothing he did bothered me. Right, but and I also agree with you. Like you either have to have somebody that everybody knows and loves being kind of who they are, or you need to have somebody who is like an up and comer who's going to like really just make this iconic like Russell Crowe mm-hmm. in Gladiator. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. Russell Crowe in Gladiator is one of those moments where somebody who was known, he was around, people knew who he was and then that was just a perfect role for him and it just made him a superstar immediately. And I feel yeah. like if you're going to gamble with $250 million, you better bet on somebody like that. And I'm sure that's what they thought. They were probably thinking, this is Taylor Kitsch's moment. And it wasn't. And now he's playing... Um, <laughs> David Koresh? Yeah, he's playing... He did a good David Koresh, actually. He was good. He yeah. was good at it. He's good. He's a good, he's a good actor. He just was not ready to be a A-list superstar. So anyway, we meet our John Carter. Um, then we we kind of have a flashback and a flashback where we go to him in Arizona. And this is, you know, taking place after the Civil War. But he's out there prospecting and he's looking for gold. And like he comes into this bar and the one of the dads from that 70s show is there and they all think he's crazy. These soldiers come in and they want him to fight for for them. This is a theme that will come up again and again in the movies, people wanting him to fight for them and he doesn't want to do it. I think it's a perfectly good character arc, but I do feel like, my God, do they hammer this in (laughs) over and over? Like, how many people are going to ask him to fight for them? Yeah, it's definitely sort of the theme that they keep hitting you with, but I felt like they didn't really explain to me why he's such a good fighter. Like, I never see him do anything. So, like... Brian Cranston says like, oh, I got this paper here that says you're the best. You're the best. And I need you on my squad. And I'm like, he's still just like one dude, right? He's not like, he's not a fucking ninja. Right. And he keeps, he keeps us trying and they play it as a joke. He keeps trying to escape. And he like, at one point jumps out You know, they, they take him back to their, the fort and he jumps through a window and stuff. And it's kind of, you know, comedic moment. Cause they keep playing this beat like three times. Maybe that's where you're supposed to think that he's a great fighter. It showed me that he's stubborn. I did right. get that. Yeah. I was like, okay. Is he supposed to be a great fighter? I thought that, you know, his stick is that he can jump really high on Mars and he wasn't really that great on earth and that maybe it was just him the fact that he's an earthling on mars was what made him special kind of like a superman thing i guess that's why brian cranston wants him to like join his unit right right because he he says something like the man i'm looking at doesn't seem to match the man described in these papers right right so sebastian let me just clear something up have you read the book can can we ask you about i have okay this movie is pretty true to the book Mm -hmm. a princess of mars but i mean it's so antiquated and and you know the way it's written is really hard to read it as a modern reader 
just because, you know, they use words we don't use anymore. And right. Okay. The only real like takeaway I could say from the book are two things that are, that are majorly different in this movie. One is that John Carter has got a real Southern gentleman vibe. Right. He says, sir. Yes. And he's not nearly as surly or, you know, there, in this whole idea that he doesn't want to fight for anyone is not in the book. He's just a hero. Uh. You know, that this is a very movie, con, you know, they need to give him an arc in a movie. And the book, he's just like, I'm a hero. Now I'm on Mars. Now I'm, you know, like he, he's just always a hero. And the other thing in the book is that the character of Dejah Thoris, the princess, is not as uh, much of a modern woman. She's kind of just a right. damsel in the distress. But other than that, the basic outline of the story is pretty much the same. So we're supposed to understand that he doesn't want to fight because he was in the Civil War and basically just has had enough of war and just... Well, and his wife and kid were killed and... Right, right. But how were they... We never... We don't see how... I mean... Was... Yeah, they were burned, maybe? But, like, what did they... Was that because, like, she left the stove on too long or did, like, <laughs> Northern Forces burn its house? Crockpot, right? No, and, okay, here's... And I'm gonna... I want to highlight this because I think this is a problem of the movie that there are a lot of things in here that I think are very fuzzy and presented in a way that you, they don't really land. Yeah. The yeah, thing with absolutely. his wife, and this would have been a good thing to highlight because it makes sense in the story later, but his wife was killed by Native Americans. Uh, Didn't get that at all. Okay. Yeah, they lived out on in, you know, whatever, in the on the plains or whatever, and, you know, he, he had fought in the Civil War and he'd come home and was raising a family or whatever, and they were killed by... Native American Indians, which then if you put him on Mars and he's befriending the Tharks, who are the big green guys, it makes sense. You know, you know what I mean? Like you can play into that idea that, you know, he's going to be distrustful of of the, the sort of natives and stuff. Man, I don't I, I can't believe that that is not clear in the movie. Like Brian Cranston yeah. could have just said, like, listen, I know I know you want revenge against the Native Americans because they killed your family, right? Like that one line, I would have been like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Right. There's a moment where the Native Americans, you know, come in, like he comes in between Native Americans and Brian Cranston's. Yes. And it seems like he wants to have peace though because he's conversing with them and it almost feels like, oh, he's one of those like, you know, oh, I have sympathy for both sides almost. That's the impression that I got. I think they made it deliberately vague because yeah. they didn't want to be politically incorrect. Did this come out before or after uh, The Lone Ranger? Before. Okay. Another Disney flop. Yeah, it was like the one-two punch of this and Lone Ranger. Then Disney was like, you know what? Let's just buy Star Wars and, <laughs> exactly. and Marvel and like stop trying to do this. <laughs> yeah, but when I was watching it at the beginning, I, I thought, okay, this feels a little bit like Dune. And then when it flashes back to the 1800s, I'm like, this feels like the Wolfman. I, I understand why Sebastian <laughs> likes this movie, because it's mashing up everything you love. So, Sebastian, just before we go on, do you love this movie or just kind of like it? I do not love this movie. Okay, okay. I will not say love. I enjoy this movie more than I think most people do. That's for sure. There's definitely people who think this is a great, underappreciated movie. But I would not put myself into that category, though I do enjoy it. So yeah, so John Carter basically gets away from the soldiers and then he and uh, dying Brian Cranston hide in this cave and they find these sort of writings on the cave wall. Suddenly this guy appears in a robes and tries to kill John Carter with a glowing knife. We will learn that these are, you know, this is one of the therns. Now, 
here's another problem with your movie. <laughs> You've got Tharks and Therns. Like, oh, man. come up with a different and Thern? Like, uh, I assume that's just what they're called in the books, and he's yes. just trying to be faithful. But yes, it. I was like, why do they sound so? I know Thark and Thern do sound different, but it is confusing when you're watching the movie. Yeah, this movie needed to be adapted more. Yeah, it was. It's being far too faithful, I think, to a 100-year-old book that no one knows. So You bring up a good point, because when I was watching it, I was thinking, even though I've not read it, I was like, this feels like this is literally the book, right? And mm-hmm. so it, and I know that based on some reading I did, Andrew Stanton yeah. is like a huge fan, and he really wanted to make it faithful. Yeah. And I applaud that, because I'm normally the guy that's like, why are you changing everything? Yeah. But it does feel like they needed to make it a little more accessible for people. Like, if I'm sitting Absolutely. there and I'm confused... This is not a good sign. Yes. Yeah, I feel like they should have modernized, you know, the main John Carter and just had him be, you know, like a golf vet or something, you know. Uh, I, there's no entry point for for modern audiences when he's already a fish out of water from the 1800s, bringing you to Mars, a different world. Like, everybody's from somewhere else, and so it's just hard to relate to anybody. So we get, uh, you know, this John Carter discovers this, the, the Thern has this amulet or something, and he speaks these magic words and touches John Carter, and then so suddenly John Carter basically wakes up on Mars, and we get our, you know, we're on Mars now, and um, Mars is kind of just sort of yellow, which I, is sort of immediately a little bit disappointing to me, and it just clearly looks like Utah. Like, if we're going to do this, let's yeah. go go big and do something crazy. It's a really weird choice to not make Mars red. It's the red planet. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Why does it not look red? Yeah, do they address that at all? Like, No, never discussed. No. They also never explain why everyone can breathe on, on Mars. They say that at the beginning, right? That Mars isn't what you know. It there is an atmosphere that, but okay, it's sure, not explained. Sure. You're you're correct. Uh, On one hand, I feel like they are trying to make it look like Mars maybe would look, you know, because I think like a year or two later we got the Martian, and that did Mars very realistically, and it kind of just looked like this in that movie. So if you're going to say Mars isn't the thing you know in reality, shouldn't you just go kind of crazy? Like, make this place red and, you know, just totally fantasize it. And it can't be that hard to color correct the sand to be from orange to red. Like, come on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that could have been, that could have easily been done. Yeah. Yeah. So even just doing that, changing the color timing would have gone a long way. So it's a strange choice. So we learn right away that John Carter can jump really high. He sort of stumbles around and he's, because he's on this new planet with different gravity, quickly sort of realizes in a sort of comedic, you know, learning your power scene that he can jump really high. Now, interestingly, the uh, Schuster brothers who created Superman cite this as sort of one of their original inspirations for Superman. Superman originally couldn't fly. He could just jump really high. Oh. What do you guys think of this sort of jumping scene? I loved it. I This is one of my favorite parts of the movie because it made total sense that like his, like whatever, his, he's used to earth gravity. And so his muscles work differently. And I thought it really made a lot of sense that he keeps, he's trying to walk and he keeps like, he keeps like falling in a weird way. And he has to, he, he has, he learns that he can jump really far. And I was like, 
I'm in. I, at that moment, I was like, I get it. Like, he now can do something no one else on the planet can do. That's going to be useful later. I agree. It was a great scene. It was it was comedic enough, uh, you know, a little bit goofy, but goofy on purpose. And uh, really cool just to see him discover what it was and try it out. And I felt like the, the special effects delivered. It wasn't, it could have easily been super, super goofy and, and fake looking, but uh, they did a good job with it. Probably one of the better scenes in, in the movie for sure. I do think the special effects are totally good, but there were moments of kind of, you could tell it's just him being lifted, lifted around <laughs> on a some sort right. of a wire thing. But you know, that's a nitpick. I think this is another case of, you know, the original work being, so old that, you know, we've seen people jump around on on the moon and they don't jump, you know, I, I could see it back in 1912. They're like, oh, gravity is less on Mars. So what if someone could jump really high? But yeah. now that we know exactly what you can and can't do on Mars, it's like, eh, like no one can actually do that. I have no idea which has more gravity, Mars or the moon, but I assume Mars has more gravity than Yeah, because it's a bigger, bigger mass. And so, I again, it's just, it's strange that if they're going to call this Mars, it doesn't look like Mars. It could have easily yeah. just been a different planet that you yep. say, like, the gravity is way, way less. And then I would have believed it even more. You know what it is, Chris? On the moon, those people have to wear spacesuits, and those are weighing them down. Right. But John Carter is wearing nothing in this. In the, right, he's wearing like right. a loin and his cloth. strong legs, man. He's, he's Taylor <laughs> Kitsch. So, you know, how do you feel about Taylor Kitsch's sh- uh, shirtless torso? Rodney. Hot. <laughs> you know, honestly, I went back and forth the whole time. There was I was like, look, like he's a good looking guy. Like he's shirtless. It's fine. I'm sure there, there are like people watching this who are into this. But like once he gets like later in the movie, once he gets his like weird armor harness on, like, yeah. I just kept thinking how goofy it looked. I don't mind that he was shirtless. It just looked goofy what he was wearing. You didn't enjoy the nipples just peeking out? I enjoyed it like 20%. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretty down with his shirtlessness. And I think in the pantheon, it wasn't like he was one of the great shirtless dudes of all time. But I think he, he, you know, again, he pulled it off in being shirtless. Like he was pretty cut. He's no sting in Dune. Yeah, this is true. Okay, so at this point, we he sort of stumbles upon this nest of hatchlings, and we get our first look at the Tharks, which are these green-skinned aliens. Um, well, not aliens on Mars, but aliens to John Carter, and they've got four arms. I knew about these aliens because my friend Jake was really into John Carter of Mars, and in the '90s, he had these. He had a Tars Tarkas action figure, so I was already kind of uh, initiated into the. T- Tars Tarkas fan club. But so we get our first look at Tars Tarkas. He shows up with a bunch of Tharks and he is voiced by Willem Dafoe. It took me a long time. It took me about until halfway through the movie, I think. I was like, oh, that's Willem Dafoe. A problem that I have when I'm watching any sort of anything that has any sort of animation in it and they've got animated characters, I cannot enjoy the movie until I figured out who the voice is. <laughs> and it's it's like it's really a it's a terrible, terrible habit. But it's like I have to know immediately. Like, who is that? Who's that voice? Oh, um, that sounds crippling. It is. No, I'm crippling. just like, I'll find like at the end of the movie, they're going to tell me. I'll find out then. Did you like him as Tars Tarkas? Yeah. Oh, he's like my favorite character. I thought Taurus Tarkas was amazing. Yeah, Willem Dafoe is always great, and it totally makes sense because he voiced a great character in Finding Nemo as well. So I, I totally see that connection, and he definitely you know brings it and fills out the character well. Tars takes a shine to John because he sees that John can jump really high. 
they have this sort of comedic exchange where John tries to explain his name to Tars. Tars thinks his name is Virginia because that's where he's from. Also worked really well. I I was laughing. Like, I'm going to be very clear. In general, this movie is way better than I thought it was going to be. You know, uh, I thought the, the running joke that everyone keeps calling him Virginia, it, it was funny. This little part of me that's like, Maybe his name's Virginia. Why are we laughing about that? Right. Like, is it <laughs> is it slightly offensive? I don't know. But I like how he keeps trying to explain to all the aliens and they just keep calling Virginia. It's it's a good running joke. Chris, did you like this or were you rolling your eyes in exasperation? No, I, I enjoyed it. It's you know, it it spiced up the, the movie, you know. The rest of it is fairly boring with the slog of the, you know, plot and the backstory. So this was a welcome relief from all that to see them interact and i thought it was it was cool that he also wasn't just like a complete jerk from the beginning you know he wasn't just being like screw you aliens go leave me alone or whatever you know he he engaged and communicated with them and so you know that endeared me to the character a little bit and uh yeah you know when you spend 250 million dollars you get some really good cg back (laughs) because the um one the, the they looked for the most part very real but i also liked the look i liked how they were really tall their forearms i liked their tusks I did have one complaint, which is that I had a very hard time telling them apart for the most part. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I literally was not aware for, for like 20 minutes that Will- Willem Dafoe was like the leader of their tribe, other than he yelled at people. But like in Avatar, they do a good job yeah. of making mm-hmm. it clear like who they are. But half the time I was like, I don't know. I literally don't know who's who here. Well, yeah, not only that, it, the, the female characters who – you know, one of whom becomes very important, don't have any real distinct, they look pretty much the same too. So it's really hard to know who is who. Absolutely. Except for the one, the main girl, she has like all these scars on her body. Sola, yeah. Sola, yeah, that helped. Han Sola. Yeah. (laughs) Voiced by Samantha Morton. I bet you didn't catch that. I did not. I can't even picture, wait, who's Samantha Morton again? Uh, She was in Minority Report. Yeah. She was the the pre-con. Got it. No, I did not know that was who vo- voiced the uh, Sola. So the Tharks take in John basically as a prisoner, and then we get a quick scene introducing our heroine, Lynn Collins, as Deja Thoris. She uh, is trying to uh, do a presentation on this Blu-ray. Uh, what do they call it? The uh, <laughs> I, I, It's a Blu-ray is what it is. Basically the thing that McNulty has that he's going to take over the planet with, but she's got her own Blu-ray that she's making. Um, And, you know, she's a scientist and she wants everybody to take her seriously, but then her father storms in with a bunch of other dudes. Um, And these are the... um, they're, they're in the city of Helium. These characters in the book were described as having red skin, and I think that they probably didn't want to do that because of the racial connotations, so they kind of give them these sort of tattoos... They look like sort of um, tattoos that are red. But, you know, this is a different tribe of of people, obviously, than the Tharks, but they're not even actually technically human. They're like, you know, Martians. And, uh, you know, Lynn Collins, I have not seen her in any uh, anything else. So, again, she's sort of an unusual choice for a lead here, as I have no idea who she is. And I still don't even really know. <laughs> I, I guess she was fine. I feel like they didn't, the characterization felt a little bit off to me. I mean, I know they wanted her to be, you know, a princess that was still smart and scientific and could do everything. And yeah, 
but just the way she was dressed felt more like a, you know, a Dubai princess or something and not really someone that was like, you know, studying science and, and very practical and trying to, you know, show off her latest, uh, achievement. So that kind of, you know, didn't work for me, but, um, she's fine counterpart to John Carter, I guess. This does not work for me. She, I felt like, look, I can't say that she was a bad actress, but I felt like her toes were right at the bad acting line. Like, (laughs) Every time she spoke, it was almost veering into like porn acting, but it never quite went that bad. I was just like, I don't I don't know if it's the lines you're saying or the way you're saying them, but I just feel like you're not really this character. I don't I don't know. Like the whole introduction of her character was confusing. Like I I, like she's a princess and but she's working on this blue ray, but the blue ray never really has a purpose. And yeah. The best way I can put it is every time she was talking, my mind started to travel elsewhere. And I was like, okay, let me know when we're done with the princess stuff. I remember when this came out, the people who saw this almost across the board, everyone was like, oh, Lynn Collins steals the movie. And I remember a lot of people wanting her for Wonder Woman, you know, because Wonder Mm. Woman had been sort of sitting around forever. I feel like that opinion has very much... Um, calmed down over the years, and clearly <laughs> this movie hasn't really done anything for her because I, I, you know, I, I don't think she's hardly worked at all, or if she has, they've been in things that I haven't seen. All Lynn Collins is stealing is valuable screen time from the plot. <laughs> <laughs> and we find that she's got to uh, marry McNulty, which she really doesn't want to do. So yeah, we have our sort of standard: the princess doesn't want to marry the evil guy trope okay so now we're with uh jc john carter and he is um in sort of the tharks village or whatever you want to call it uh we get the introduction of the word jeddak what does that remind you of ah hmm yeah so that word was obviously stolen and adjusted by lucas and I feel like that, again, is one of those things where just don't use the change the word because everybody's just going to think of Jedi. The first time they said it, I thought they said Jedi. It's impossible not to. I really did. I was like, did he say Jedi? Jedak just basically means leader. Um, but we learn that Tars Tarkas is the leader of this tribe. We get introduced to who we will find out as his, his daughter. And, and this is a weird thing because... We've just seen that the Tharks are all basically born in nests. So, like, they don't traditionally have mothers and fathers and stuff like that. And they do sort of address that in the story. But this female Thark, Sola, who has gotten beaten pretty bad, Tars is kind of quietly trying to protect her because he's not supposed to, you know, single her out or treat her in any special way because that's just not their way. But, you know, he obviously has affection for her. Um, I, I want to go back to there was like a baby slaughter, though, from when they first find the nest and they're like, don't leave anything for the what is it? The white worms or something like that. Did that ever pay off? The white like, apes. White apes. OK, is that is that what the, it was in the arena and that would have eaten all the babies? Is that what happened? Yeah, what you're supposed to take from that is that they're very brutal. They'd rather kill their kids than let them get eaten. Right. Physical strength is everything to them. So if you're born and weak in any way, they will just kill you, which, you know, they consider to be merciful rather than let you die out in the desert. Honestly, I was a little bit glazed over. and, And also the fact that I couldn't tell them apart, again, was kind of an issue with me trying to track everything that was happening with them. I'm just kind of like, okay. I don't think it's 100% your fault. I think this movie makes it tough to 
follow and it's sort of strange because it's simple it's a very simple movie in in many ways (laughs) yeah well there's one thing i i I do want to say that i was not anticipating is that this movie is like i don't want to use the word violent but i'm going to it's more violent than i thought it would be Mm -hmm. not that it's violent but like a lot of people get killed including a bunch of babies or baby Mm -hmm. aliens which again it like it's all done in that pg-13 way where like it's off screen but they're still getting murdered like that woman gets branded. People yep. get like their heads cut off. I, I I think that was one of the, like when I saw Disney John Carter, I had a very specific thing in mind. I was not expecting so much blue alien blood to be spilled. Well, and I, I think that's a byproduct of the source material. The pulp novels were violent. You know, Conan, it, it comes from, you know, the same sort of era that Conan comes from. And, you know, Conan was a you know very violent sort of character. So it's just it's just the way the pulp novels were, and yeah, they try they disguise it with blue blood and stuff like that. But the you know there's a brutality to this movie that is kind of a little shocking. So that was a plus for me. Going back to your question about Sola, can you explain to me like how she know or how Willem Dafoe knows that's his daughter? Because like he explains it, but I yeah. felt like I didn't hear it correctly, and I didn't want to rewind. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> and you've seen this movie several times. Well, I, there, it's just basically John Carter figures it out. If they do spell it out how it was able to do it, it goes by so fast that... Right. Okay. But there's lots of things that I can't explain to you. Like, And I've seen this movie a, a bunch of times. And I think that's a, a real problem with it. And, you know, it's just the way things... The way information is dealt out at times gets incredibly muddy and that's really kind of shocking coming from a guy who came out of Pixar because Pixar is like, Mm -hmm. they are like the Kings of concise, efficient storytelling. So it's, I think it's a little bit of a shock and I think it's a byproduct of a guy who comes from animation suddenly dealing with real people. I feel like he's overwhelmed. Like I feel like an overwhelmed person behind the camera. I think Pixar, if if they if it wasn't a book and and the brain trust of Pixar looked at this story, they would have been like, condense, 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 you know, streamline, yeah. and they would have like taken a, a hatchet to it. But and which should have been done. But uh, I I think when someone's too loyal to to the origin, it's a problem. So um, John Carter uh, basically they take him into this like powdering room and he gets this powder thrown on him and then he gets stripped to a loincloth, which we're all happy about. You know what it is? I think he looks good in a loincloth is what it is. <laughs> there aren't too many people that can pull off a loincloth. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can and do. And if it wasn't a little chilly here, I would definitely be wearing a loincloth as we spoke, but I think he looks pretty good in a loincloth. They put him in this kind of like burgundy colored loincloth and, you know, they can't do anything with his boots. So he gets to keep his boots. You know, it's pretty good. So he ends up sort of in this dungeon. And here's where we meet uh, Woola the dog. So adorable. It's like, I don't know how you would describe it. It's like, it's like if you mix a dog and a frog Mm. and it's the size of like, like what, like a really big dog. Like it's, you could ride it. He is. I assume that's also in the original novel, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I found his presence super charming. I I really liked him. Disney Disney did their magic with this character. Completely agree. Yeah, it, it's super fun. And as as an animal no- lover, you know you you pings right there, and and you feel you feel for this character, and you love them. I'm gonna shock you guys. 
I had a problem with Willa. <laughs> oh, Willa, Willa. I look, I, I've kind of warmed up to Willa, and I'm, clearly, I'm a dog person. Um, I live for my dog, but I don't like the design of Willa. He's got this kind of gross uh, vaginal nose, and he's <laughs> and he's got he's got like six legs, which contribute to the fact that he can run really fast, mm-hmm. which actually makes him a, a useful character because he sort of zooms in and does stuff. I'm not into slobbering. And they, he, he, there's a lot of slobber. He does a lot of slobbering. And uh, yeah, so at first I definitely was not a fan of Woola. And I got a lot of pushback from people who saw the movie because they were like, Woola's the best thing in the movie. You got to be the only person who doesn't yeah. like that. I'm, well, I, I didn't know. know it had a name. I, I guess they said it in the movie, but I missed that. But it's so cute. He's adorable. Yeah, and the slobber isn't in real life, so who, let him slobber I all know. over the movie screen. It doesn't matter. Like I have strange picadillos, Chris. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I, I did l- like the re- you know the interaction between him and John Carter. Carter definitely you yeah. know appreciated him, and you know the stay and come, and you know I feel like that made me connect to John Carter even as well as the dog. Well, and the way they do it, the way they sort of set up their bond is actually really clever because. John Carter gets out of his chains and then he just starts trying to jump away. But mm-hmm. Woola is so fast that everywhere he jumps to, Woola is already there waiting for him. I do have two things I want to briefly complain about. And one is, how come there's no more of that creature in the movie? Like, whatever that thing is, right. there's only one of them, right? right. Like, like, there are dogs all over Earth. But how come there's no whatever those things are, right? And two... When John Carter John Carter is shackled up, the chains hanging from the wall just have two arm manacles, but Tharks have four arms. So shouldn't there be four chains hanging? Oh. Yeah, I'm catch. that guy. I'm the guy that yeah. sits there and just looking at the background like, you fucked up, Dude, Andrew. if that's not on IMDb goofs, you you should definitely <laughs> write it and get it in there because that should definitely be an IMDb goofs. Or is it the chamber just for the humans? Could be. It could be when they capture people from helium. Maybe right, because heliums, right. they don't have forearms. So, yeah. Yep, see, busted. Yeah, you can't do it on IMDb now. <laughs> you know, after this whole scene, uh, JC is captured again. and um, Wait, you got to talk about the milk. Oh, right. English milk or Martian milk, I guess. Right, right. yeah. So John gets... Um, f- he drinks this milk or whatever that allows him to understand the <laughs> language of the Tharks so that they basically don't have to keep using subtitles the whole Like, movie. what the fuck? But that's Are actually in the book. Me? That's in I'm, the book. I believe all of this is in the book. <laughs> that's dumb. That's real dumb. So you would have preferred that they just didn't understand each other and it had to be in subtitles the whole time? I would have preferred numerous ways of doing it, but just like a montage of him, like trying to learn some Martian the way they did it in like uh, the 13th warrior. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I, you can't really do the, you can't do the, the hunt for red October thing. Yeah. I, I don't know what the solution is. Same director, op- both those movies, interestingly enough. So that was a McTiernan trick. Like zoom in on the mouth and then, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Who almost directed this. He's a, he's a projection of his own body anyway. So can they just say that this new projection has the skill to communicate in whatever language? I feel like that would have been the solution just to be like, yeah. okay, look, like he's different. He can understand everybody because it's not even his body. I would have much preferred he just showed up and every, he understood everyone right from right. the start. And he was like, wait, how can I understand you? And they're like, I don't know, but whatever. Right. But like milk, some kind of fucking milk that like, 
makes you speak Martian. Come on, fuck off. That's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Didn't really bother me, honestly. I I can't really mount a defense of it, but I also was just relieved that okay, whatever. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, no. I'm, it's like I, it didn't ruin the movie. I was like, look, I'd rather everyone just be speaking English yeah. than read subtitles this whole time. So okay, there's magic milk. But no. then we would have lost the the sack, the jump jump moment with Virginia and that whole thing. I guess you would have lost a little bit of that right. Roland Defoe and him bonding. But yeah, true, I don't know. So um, JC's captured again, and they Solo's in <laughs> trouble for basically messing up and not keeping a close eye on him or whatever. And so they bring them both out to this whipping post and Sola is whipped badly. And, you know, we real this is where we sort of learn that she's been whipped so many times. She doesn't even have room for one more scar. So, mm-hmm. well, she's branded. She's branded. branded. Right. It's not a whip. It's a branding. I, I like the character of Sola, but certainly the first time I watched the movie, I was like, well, whatever. Like, you know, like I wasn't really following even any of this kind of Dude, stuff. Dude, Sola is like an extra who's just in a whole bunch of the movie. Right. Like, she is not a character. Like, yeah. I thought she was going to be a character because they spent some time the whole, with the whole branding thing. But by the end of the movie, I knew nothing about her. Right. She doesn't have a... There's not a single scene in the movie where she has like a heart to heart with, with John about anything. Yeah. Or I don't even know what she wants. She's literally just like the Thark companion. Yeah. And literally as I sit here and record, I don't remember what happened to her at the end of the movie. And I watched this less than 24 hours ago. Me too. Well, it's like they're trying to set up a Chewbacca type character or something, but they are also trying to give her this sort of tragic backstory. It doesn't have any impact. Yeah. The the problem is, it's like you're setting up this idea that she's like has so many brands on her body because she's been punished by the tribe so many times. Yeah. But at no point does John say, what's with all those brands? Like, right. what what did you do? And then she explains it. Like, I don't know. Is she a fucking criminal or is she just like klutzy? It's not woven into the overarching narrative in a meaningful way. It at least gave John something, you know, it showed him empathizing with her when they're both being branded there. And so, right. you know, that, that gave him something to do other than just look tough. So uh, there was that. Yeah. His attitude towards her makes you like him because yeah. he, you know, he gives a shit. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, well, he's he is kind of a hero. So it serves a very minor purpose. Before John can be branded, they are interrupted by the arrival of the Zadangans. <laughs> Who normal who the, the so the city of Zodanga is this like moving city, which is a trope we see in science fiction every now and then. There was recently this movie called Mortal Engines oh God. that Peter Peter Jackson produced that may end up on this show one day. Oh, and uh count me there's out. a whole there's a whole <laughs> Rodney, you want to watch Mortal Mortal Engines? You know, I got to tell you, on an airplane, I tried watching it. I got about 15 to 20 minutes in, and I turned it off. And I was like, I can't. This is terrible. Anyway, that also has the idea of like a walking city in it. Um, They don't really do much with the walking city in this movie, which is a little bit of a bummer. Right? They fucking set up this giant city that's like on crab claws that walks Mm -hmm. around. And then like it has no purpose whatsoever. Like every once in a while, they'll cut back to it. And I'll be like, oh, we're back here, but it never does anything. And also, this is some of the worst CG in the movie. Like the actual, the claws of the city, they look embarrassingly bad. But um, so in this scene, uh, you know, a couple of airships arrive. McNulty is on (laughs) on the 
the bridge of his air barge. And um, they are chasing after Deja, who has run away, I guess, and stolen a ship. It's it's a little bit fuzzy. But they're trying to get her. She's got some sort of uh, – she's stolen some armor, and she's sabotaging things. And then McNulty blasts her ship, and she goes flying off the edge, and she's hanging off the, sh- uh, the edge of the ship. And then um, John Carter sees her and recognizes her as being – a cutie so he jumps up and saves her <laughs> it was it, it felt very superman as you said to watch yeah. him like leap up and like grab her as she's falling totally it was weird it it's like he just happens to notice this person and i think he actually says like she's a human yeah and that's a question i kept asking myself because i was like is she a human because there is a part where one of the humans quote unquote gets stabbed and they have blue blood so i guess she's she's not right she's a martian but she looks like a human yes which right. doesn't make any to John Carter. Right. It doesn't make any sense. And then I went down this whole hole of like, well, if they hook up and they have a baby, what's that going to be like? And like, what, like was purple blood. Will his penis fall off? Can he even do this? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, stop Ronnie. Just pay attention to the movie. <laughs> Therein lies madness. One of my biggest complaints with this movie is I literally have no idea why these two like factions are fighting each other. Yeah. And do they even care about the Tharks? Because there's the Tharks and there's like the two separate human faction or Martian human looking people. Yeah. So every time they're fighting, I was like, wait, why are they? They just like don't like each other. So anytime that happened, I, I didn't feel invested in it one way or another. But I was like, yeah, yeah, they're shooting at her. She's going to fall to her death. Ah, the only woman in the movie meets John Carter. And I, I understand Soul is a, <laughs> the only person who's a love interest, I would say. This I can explain to you. Please, please. There's the city of Zadanga and there's the city of Helium. They're both ostensibly the same race, but they are those two cities are at war. The Tharks don't have anything to do with it. They're on the outside. They don't want to be involved in this war, but they're also just so warlike that if you start anything with them, they're going to fight you, but they're not involved in this specific conflict um, so they're the native americans and then there's a civil war yeah that's like, basically yeah that's basically oh it. chris you're smart dude there's it's like it's like a throwback to earlier in the film so yeah they uh that's that's the situation there i mean in the therns are another confusing layer to it because they are this sort of godlike race of beings who just want to manipulate everything and they've manipulated this whole conflict between the um these two you know Zodanga and Helium and they've given McNulty this advantage with this weapon because they want him to to rule Helium and then he's gonna presumably you know rule the world you know what I have a drinking game for people right who are listening (laughs) watch this movie with a group of friends and at any point pause the movie and point to any character and ask the room what does that person want and if you can't answer you have to drink because I don't know what anyone in the movie wants at any yeah. point, except vaguely John Carter wants to go back to Earth, even though his yeah. life there he is He wants really his cave bad. of gold. He wants his cave of gold. Right. Yeah. But everyone else, literally every other character, like what does Thark, Tharkis want? I, I don't know, to keep being ruler? 
Yeah. yeah. The bald people reminded me of like the engineers mixed with, you know, the watchers from Marvel yep. or whatever. Yep. Yeah. They just seem like these mastermind weirdos that, yeah, I <laughs> guess they were supposed to be the ultimate evil. And I was wondering if maybe even like the humans were going to work it out and realize that they are the ultimate evil. But they don't believe the therns even exist. The therns are like a myth. They're always in hiding. They're never, you know, they're never out in the open. They assume other people's identity, you know. That part of the movie I didn't understand at all the first time I saw it. I was, I just, I mean, I knew that they were pulling the strings, but I'm like, what do they want? Like, yeah, it's really hard to understand what everybody wants. But what Deja wants is for John Carter, you know, there, there's this big action sequence, which I actually really like. I like that, um, that you know, John, JC jumps up onto the barge where um, McNulty is and he's sort of pulled free this chain that he's been chained to the thing with and he's using the chain as a weapon i like unusual weapons in movie and like this these kind of like pulpy action movies like i actually really like this scene he's jumping from ship to ship Uh, yeah it was fine i think they made the most out of you know the jumping abilities i have no complaints with that you know i feel like they came up with unique ideas for him to to use that ability and jump from ship to ship i thought it was cool but uh, again to me, there was no real physical stakes. It, it does feel like an animated movie where there's just so much kind of going on. It feels prequel-esque where the designs are so intricate. It's hard to keep track of what's even going on sometimes. Yeah. Um, My note on all the action scenes are they're fun, but there's nothing awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no moment in the movie where I wanted to, like, yeah. rewind and be like, dude, dude, I know you heard John Carter is bad, but watch this part. Yeah. There is no part like that. So, yeah. but like it was, I, I just kept thinking how much I wish I were six. If I were six, I'd probably watch this movie a, like 20 times in a row. Well, actually not. I would just watch Commando because that's what I did when I was six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you Hell could yeah. just wish you were me and then you'd watch it 20 times in a row. Dude, it must be so glorious being you. You just you, you just <laughs> love every every movie that comes out. I really don't. I really don't. It's... <laughs> Only the bad ones. When I really hate a movie, I just don't want to talk about it. I just want it to go away. I'm the exact opposite. I I feel like it's it's poison in me that I have to like get out through vitriolic ranting. <laughs> you know, when they're showing the green aliens, I'm I keep thinking, oh, I wish I was watching Avatar. When they're in the arena, I'm like, oh, this reminds me. I don't of ever wish I was watching Avatar. Attack of the Clones, or you know, like uh, Valerian, or yeah. something like that. Like everything kind of reminded me of a different movie that I felt was a little bit more entertaining, maybe not better, but more entertaining, even like gods of Egypt, you know, it it felt like it was, it looked very similar. There's something about it that just felt, you know, kind of stock clone and and reminded me of something better. So, uh, Deja and John kind of have their little exchange. You know, we see that they're obviously sort of into each other, but, um, Deja really wants, um, this super powered man to join her side and fight against, um, helium her real reasons to wanting him to do this is so she doesn't have to marry mcnulty but she doesn't say that at this point jc refuses uh, you know so we're hitting that note again of like i'm not gonna fight your war it it makes sense here this is the place where i think it's it's sort of the best use of it again i i don't think the chemistry between these two is very good and between deja and john i don't know there's just something about the way that she's like from the minute she meets him, she's basically like, man, I just want to fuck the shit out of you. And like, <laughs> by the way, when we're done, would you help fight and win this war for me? Because you're a good jumper, you know? Right. And I'm like, lady, too soon, too fast. Come on, if John Carter saved you from falling to your death and it was Taylor Kitsch, 
you know, yeah. I'd want to get busy pretty quick. That's true. She he did he did save her. So yeah, at this point they start talking about he tells her where her he's from and she's like, "Oh, okay. Well, clearly then you're insane. You're you're not from her, you know, some other planet." And he's like, "Well, yes, I am." And he, you know, he talks about how on his planet they sail in the sea, the seas and, you know, of course there's not a lot of water on Mars, a.k.a. Bar- Barsoom. So this is a real fantastical story to her. So this kind of leads to this excursion to a temple, the Thark Temple, where they learn some of the mythology of this movie. And this is where I get really confused and kind of checked out of the movie. But I thought the map room looked really cool. And honestly, that was one of the... Maybe just because visually it was it was unique and exciting that I started to pay attention a, a little bit more to what they were saying. I don't know if I caught any of it, but it, it was an engaging scene for me. I, I think here's what I got from it. Basically, they realized that like all the planets are connected via these magical gateways. And like there's like a magic phrase that you have to say that can like, yes. th- there's like a different phrase for each planet that you want to go to. Right. So in the map room, they discover the magic words you need to say that will take you from Mars to mm-hmm. Earth or vice versa. But you also need some kind of magic amulet, which we saw when right. at the beginning. That's yeah, what I got, got from it. the scene. But I acknowledge that the scene is very long. And I remember when the scene ended, me being like, wait, I feel like I should have been paying attention better because <laughs> I felt like it just washed over me. Well, it's kind of two scenes. There's there's the scene where they go to the temple and then they get caught for this and they're in trouble for going in the temple. Sola is really in trouble because she led them to the temple. Basically, Tars like risks his own reputation to save Sola and send them out into the desert. And then they go out to the desert and then they go to that other place that's like the mystical rock. And then they go right, they cross the river. Right? They cross the river Is, and then uh, they go to the right. mystical rock. Well, it's confusing because those scenes are so close together that you just kind of meld them in your mind into one scene. But they're actually like two scenes. You're right. The first temple, that's where they learn about the therns, right? The therns, yes. And that's when they're like the therns of these bald headed people that aren't really real. Don't believe in them. You're right. And then later they do their like they go to the magic tree. And that's where I think the map room is. Yes. Yeah. It's and, you know, even what it is, is kind of uh, vague and like, you know, it's a rock. Is it? It's just some sort of structure. And they go on top of the structure and then they go inside the structure. And then everything's this sort of corally like webby thing. And then they put the amulet in the ground and then this the blue light. Well, I I forgot that there's this whole plot in the first third of the movie where he's trying to get the amulet back from from the leader of the tharks from tars because he right because he brings it with him yes and then he i gotta tell you john carter does a lot of things right but he really does not respect the tie the the portal jumping amulet in this movie (laughs) he like he shows up and the first thing he does is like forget that he has it which again i get it he's dealing with like gravity issues and shit uh but then when he finds out he needs it uh, I'm sorry, what's the leader of the Tharks called? Tars Tarkas. Yeah, okay, just, you need better names. <laughs> but yeah, Tars Tarkas has the amulet, and he keeps trying to get it back from him. So that's why he has it at this point in the film. I forgot about that. How does he get it back? I don't remember. I think he just, like, grabs it out of his, like, loincloth or something. He grabs it out of Tars's 
pocket, quote unquote. And Tars is like, if you're going to take that, take my daughter too. Now get out of here. Yeah. But like, you know, when you've only seen this movie once and you haven't seen it in a long time, those two scenes just kind of meld into the same, you know, expository Mm -hmm. magic scene. And you can't remember barely what was communicated in any of it. I think the most interesting thing that we sort of learn, I don't know if it's the most interesting thing, but the, the thing that I think is most pertinent to sci-fi stories now is we learn that john carter is basically an avatar he's a copy right right he's not really on mars it's just this version of him that's on mars which you know Mm -hmm. i think is clearly the idea that avatar is completely built around and you know i am not a fan of avatar as chris knows but I can begrudgingly admit that Avatar does a lot of things right. Like it takes a lot of these sort of tropes and ideas and remixes them, I think, into a pretty potent brew. Obviously, Uh it made people fall in love with Pandora and get depressed when they couldn't be on Pandora. You know, so clearly Cameron did something right uh, there and I feel like Avatar is kind of a remake of, of this story. It's just done the way you should do it. Whereas you're like, yeah, we're not going to call it Mars. We're going to call it a whole nother planet. The planet's right, going to be super right. cool and not boring desert. It's going to be a super cool, exciting jungle full of all sorts of right. exciting, cool things. I got to ask you a question. What do you like better, Avatar or John Carter? Well, okay, that's funny because I like John Carter better as a movie. Like, I'd rather watch John Carter more. There are things about Avatar that really bother me. It really bothers me that it's the noble savage narrative and, you know, all of that sort of like hippy dippy, you know, the magical tree. And there's just things that specifically rub me the wrong way. Sebastian, you don't like plug your ponytail into a tree every now and then? Yeah, the ponytails, not into the ponytails. I think the, the big blue aliens look goofy i have a problem with blue characters in general in movies i feel like blue doesn't look good in movies for characters Mm -hmm. if if you had just put a whole different you know or or done a better story i would have liked avatar a lot like because i love the 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 ideas and the production design and the way it looks the colorfulness of it i really like so there are things about it that i that i like but you know, and it's also that kind of thing, I think, where because it was so successful and this was so not, it's that sort of underdog thing of like, fuck that movie, John Carter, you know? Yeah, that's, but, I think that's the, that's the theme of the whole podcast, right? Like, <laughs> it, it, the, these two movies are literally at the opposite ends of the financial mm-hmm. spectrum. It's like Avatar is, at the time was the most successful movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And John Carter was maybe the least successful movie ever made. And good old Sebastian's like, fuck Avatar. <laughs> give me give me John Carter. Even after going on a whole spiel about how Avatar does all of the John Carter stuff better. Well, yeah. okay. Well, let me ask you, Rodney. Do you like, like, fuck it. Let's just talk about Avatar because we'll never talk about it on this <laughs> podcast because it's, it's way too successful. It's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. we'll never do an Avatar Well, maybe podcast. number two. Maybe we'll talk about Avatar 2. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get to do Avatar That's true. Two. We might be talking about Avatar 2. <laughs> I think yeah. Avatar 2 has a there's a very big possibility that's going to just lose so much fucking money. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Not because I'm I I don't like James Cameron just because I want to talk about it. I think Avatar is just so visually cool. 
uh, and has so many cool, exciting sequences and things I haven't seen before mm-hmm. that it just like won me over. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, I'm not like a, a staunch defender of it. Like, I'm not going to tell you, I love the movie, but I really like it a lot. All right. So back to John Carter, like a, a less fun movie to talk about, I guess. But we're getting to the good stuff. Basically they, you know, so they go to this temple or they go to this rock, magical rock or whatever, and learn all this shit. And then um, the Tharks show up because there's this, and this is also confusing because it's not, I don't think it's the same Tharks that John's friends with. This is like a different group of Tharks and they show up and there's this chasing after uh, the heroes and John's like, all right, I'm going to go fight him, you know, basically to save uh, Deja and, and everybody. So he and Woola fight. There's this big battle between basically the Tharks and John Carter and Woola. And it's just the two of them against this whole army. And they, you know, John Carter's jumping around and screaming and killing. And as he's doing this, we're getting these flashes of his wife and child. And they're, right. they're, this is where we're really learning that, you know, he came home and found them dead and he's burying them. And so it's, you know, sort of intercut with him, this sav- him savagely killing all these Tharks. <laughs> And Wool is sort of flying around and killing them. This is probably my other favorite part. This, this, I was sitting there with my mouth hanging open, being like, I guess they get away with it because it's blue blood. But John Carter is like going to fucking town on these Tharks. Like, it's graphic. And I mean, not graphic, graphic, but there's plenty of like sword and cut and then blood sprays kind of shit. I, however, was like, who are these Tharks? Like, yeah. Because I thought they were maybe the the tribe he has been with. Like, you only see one tribe. Yeah. So suddenly now there's this other tribe. And, like, we didn't talk about it, but there's this dude voiced by Thomas Hayden Church, right? Paul got, like, Hodges. And, yeah, Paul Paul, Paul Hodgkins. And, he, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the only reason I knew who he was because one of his tusks was broken. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah. And he, he keeps trying to, like... He wants to like uh, challenge Willem Dafoe for leadership. Yeah. So I thought he was the leader of this angry tribe that they're fighting now. But I was like, wait, he's got two tusks. So who's this angry Thark? It's just another tribe. Super confusing. Super confusing. No, and it would make sense if it was Tal Hodges, except that then John Carter would have killed him. And then Tal Hodges can't usurp uh, (laughs) Tars Tarkas later in the film so yeah they're just basically another tribe it, um, it literally feels like this scene was added after they shot the movie and they said we need another action scene just yeah. just have him fight some fucking tharks that totally makes sense because you can totally tell he's just on a green screen just swinging swing over here swing there swing this and there's no actual you don't care about what's actually happening fortunately because it's cross-cut with the flashback footage but he's not really doing anything other than just slashing air and they're putting in a cg guy for him to kill and so it's a little underwhelming in that respect but i mean you know at least it is a kind of thrilling action battle no i'm saying it's not because of that (laughs) it wasn't thrilling for me maybe thrilling isn't i wasn't thrilled but it certainly was some much needed excitement as the movie was getting bogged down with like magic map rooms and shit. Yes, that's what I mean. Right, I was very into the fact to, to to have John Carter like cut loose. Like that was that idea was cool. I just felt like the execution was lackluster. And but I applaud the that moment that they were going for. I do have to say, like, I get that he's strong and can jump and shit, but like there's like a hundred of them, you know, and they have guns. Like, I find it a little unbelievable that like 
And they're all fucking like warriors. They're like a warrior tribe, right? Yeah. But like, all right, he's basically Superman. He can like break rocks and shit. I'll let it go. Mm-hmm. But I was sort of like, come on, we're 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 testing the limits of believability here. Right. Well, and if he can do this, why is he even sweating it at the end when he wants to get the Tharks to go do a run on helium? If he can just kill everybody like this, then just do it yourself, <laughs> JC. Yeah. Yeah, like, why do you need the Tharks at all? Then, like, imagine Superman like going to the Marines and being like, "I need your help." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can't do it without you guys. So basically, uh, the uh, ship from Helium shows up, and it's Deja's father, as played by uh, Kieran Hines, who's been sort of peppered in throughout the movie. So they think, they're, "Okay, they're it's great, we're saved." But then we find out that uh, McNulty's with them. Her father's basically insisting that she's got to marry McNulty now. And so they're brought back to, they're actually brought back to Zadanga. Not, and we, okay, this is another kind of problem with the movie, and I'm sure that you agree with me. Zodanga and Helium, I don't know when I'm when in either place. Yep. To be mm, clear, nope. Z- Zadanga is the crab city, right? Yes. Okay. No, okay. I I never knew where I was. I I, I would just I know I, I would know we're either in like the Thark village or some yeah. human city, and that was it. Zodanga and Helium look so much alike that you don't. They're clearly like using the same sets. You know what I mean? Even though one's a crab city and the other is like a, a whatever city. I don't even know what it is. They might as well be the same place. It made me realize if I could go back in time and offer Andrew Stanton a, a word of advice, I would be like, "Hey, bro, just." Remember, act like nobody has read the book. Yeah. yeah. Because the whole movie is coming across like everybody fucking loves John Carter and everyone's mm-hmm. read all 11 books and they know all this shit. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Where are we? Who's that? What are they doing? That was the whole movie for me. Yeah. It's treating it like it's Lord of the Rings. Only nobody's read these books. So <laughs> everyone's completely lost. One thing I like about this section, though, is that um, once and look, John, John Carter is getting captured way too much. Like he's constantly being captured. I think he gets captured like three times in the next 20 minutes. Yep. That's another drink. Another drinking game. You can yeah. Like do. how many times? And he's like the most powerful guy in the planet. Like how are <laughs> yeah, he can kill a whole army, but he can also be super easily captured. You know, it doesn't make doesn't really track. But so, yeah, he's being held prisoner somehow even though he's super powerful. And then, so James Purifoy shows up as a character who I cannot remember his name and don't really care. He shows up and there's this sort of humorous scene where he's like, take me prisoner. And so they can escape. Right. And then they go sort of jumping out of the, wherever they are. And um, he jumps them into like Deja's like parlor where she's getting ready to be married. And she's got all these bridesmaids with her. First of all, James, how do you say it? Purifoy? Purifoy, yeah, Purifoy. Dude, I have no idea who that guy is. Like, I know he was, like, in a scene earlier in the movie, but, like, suddenly he's now, like, a character in this film or, like, an hour in. And this movie's long as fuck, too. I don't know if we mentioned that. It's, like, 2.15. But I was like, okay, who's that? Okay, I guess he's another good guy. And then he's like, hey, how can you jump me literally, like, all the way across town to that tower that's, (laughs) that's, like, taller than where we are? And, like, he just does it on the, like, okay, I get it, it's a movie, he can jump good, but, like, 
that jump was ridiculous and not in a good way. I thought it was entertaining. It felt like another, you know, out of the Marvel playbook where, you know, have have a guy come and it's a little bit jokey with, with this escape. And she told me, you can make this jump. So uh, I went for it, you know? I mean, to me, the movie's so... I'm not tracking any of the mythology and stuff like that. So anytime something like this came around, I was there for it. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, jump. He made it. Yay. <laughs> I think what you're rubbing up against Rodney is that John Carter's powers are never real. Like we don't know the boundaries or limitations to his powers ever. He can jump really far when he needs to jump. He can kill a million Tharks when he needs to kill a million Tharks. But then he can't just like fucking smash through the walls of a prison and be like, fuck you. I'm not staying Dude, here. <laughs> you you bring up a really good point because like at one point he literally like has a metal chain and like breaks it out of a rock, but he couldn't get mm -hmm. out of his metal manacles. Right. Yeah. And you're totally right. Because the movie doesn't explain those rules, it can never can put him in a position where we feel like all hope is lost. And then yeah. he like fights back. He's literally like whatever badass level setting is needed in the moment. He can just turn it up to that level. Well, in fairness, I think that rock got like destroyed and then he was able to pull it apart, though. Right. I, I feel like he was trying to pull the chain out that entire time. And then something either happened to the rock and fell and loosened it. And he was able to break that out. Right. I think you're right. But I think the point <laughs> still stands. That the, like... the point still stands. I just wanted to point out that at least in that instance, I feel like they were trying to show you that it wasn't just his pure strength that pulled that out. It was like happenstance. OK, OK. I, I think it would have been helpful if there had been some sort of like kryptonite or something that limits his power that we see can be used against him in some way. I mean, we sort of see it. In this sort of next scene, basically, Mark Strong puts this like magical spell on him where he's got this sort of like tattoo ribbon around his neck and he can't. And now suddenly, you know, he's now powerless against Mark Strong, the Thern. He's sort of taking him throughout the city and he's explaining to him what the Thern's plan is. And that is basically to, you know, they, they go around to all these civilizations and they influence it and push them in directions and they basically push them towards their own destruction. Yeah, like he finally explains what they do and he's like, yo, we just kind of like bring civil war to places and then we like feed off of the destruction. Like, okay, but like, why are you helping McNulty only? Like, it's unclear even though he says that's what they want, I just didn't follow it. And and, and they, yeah. they have no grander purpose in the movie, right? Like, yeah, they basically have laser guns that they rarely use, and they have magic amulets that they rarely use, and they can shapeshift, and they do that a lot. Yeah, it would have made more sense if they were like V, you know, we're like, we're going to distract everybody with war while we suck all the water off of Earth or something like that. That would have made more sense uh, yeah. as opposed to just like, oh, we just love war and you know feeding off of it it just, just right. seemed a little vague it would be easier to digest if we knew that they wanted something specific and concrete like mm -hmm. i think it's it's a little too vague of oh we just like to push people to destroy themselves like that's not that's one of those things it's an answer that raises more questions because it's like well why what what are you right. getting out of this or is this just 
to entertain yourselves or whatever. Was there no more explanation in the book? The, the book didn't even have the the therns were sort of something that was peppered in the fur they weren't like major mm. players they come you know they're like f- further down the series okay. and i only i only read the first this is trying to squeeze a bunch of the mythology into the first movie you know what i mean you know when when i think about it you know everyone thinks oh my god star wars is such a rich mythology but there's not n- that much of it in the first movie you know no. they barely mention the emperor they barely mention how anything really works and i feel yeah. like now the template is like let's give everything that came out of the star wars saga in that first movie and you're like maybe you shouldn't maybe leave it yeah. you know for sequels or just let people figure it out read the book if they wanted but you know i think right. I think Hollywood took that to heart and now thinks that they need to give you an entire sprawling mythology in the first movie. And I think that might be overdone. I would actually kind of lay that maybe at the feet of the Lord of the Rings because the Lord of the Rings movies managed to do that really elegantly. And I think, you know, you had Star Wars and then I think the next big sea change in this type of epic film fantasy making was the Lord of the Rings. I wouldn't even say The Matrix because I think The Matrix, like Star Wars, does a similar thing where you're not getting that much mythology, really. You're just getting simple things. Yeah, which is your favorite Matrix, the, the first, first one. one. <laughs> right. So, But I think I think Lord of the Rings tricked a lot of people into thinking yeah, that this could be done point. elegantly and easily in one movie, and it can't. And the trick right. with Lord of the Rings is the first movie isn't really a full movie, <laughs> mm-hmm, but you're right. like, you're tricked into thinking it is because it's so rich and, and, and satisfying, but it's really not a whole movie. Like everybody splits up at the end. It's, it's not, it's not what yeah. you typically, there's no big triumph really. It's a tough line to walk and this does not do it successfully. But this is when um, we get John Carter escapes from the Thurn And uh, he jumps on a sort of speeder bike airship thing and flies uh, underneath the the legs of the city and he's being chased. It looks very green screeny. It's not particularly that great. It's funny because... I always forget about this scene and then it comes up and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this. And this, this should be like the big fun air chase and it's kind of I find really unmemorable and you know and it's doubly a shame because it's the one part in the movie where we're really seeing the what it means to have a walking city again it it falls under like entertaining enough but like kind of dumb yeah like I again I just watched this I literally don't remember how he breaks away from the spell of the thern I think the the doesn't his buddy help him or somebody turns it off? I remember him being, yeah. And then I remember the effect of it, like leaving his body, right. but I don't remember even who did it. You're right. I think it's Woola. Woola does something, I believe. See what I mean? We don't, no one yeah. actually knows, but I do remember, yeah, the, like the, like the magic tattoo leash goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember he jumps on one of like, we, we didn't really talk about how weird the ships look. I think yeah, I like the design of the, what he yeah. got on it. It felt tactile and you know, I, I liked what was happening with it. And I like that. He's like, fumbling with how to like drive this thing yeah but i mean he figures it out pretty quickly and i don't know how he doesn't just crash right but like yeah it's a movie whatever like he sort of does crash he gets away and then he sort of crashes in the desert that's true after he gets away you're right i don't know it was fine it was fine i'm not gonna like rant about this scene it's not it's not a great action scene but it's no you know it it, it was again um i'll take that over him talking with deja 
anytime. So I would put this down as a missed opportunity because it's just it could have been a really cool scene considering all the 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 elements they had in place, but it ends right. up being it ends up being forgettable. You know what? Now that I know you don't like it, I like it. I like it more now. <laughs> this is actually my new favorite scene in the movie. This is why I like having you on, Rodney, <laughs> because of your your oppositional defiance. <laughs> It makes for good podcasting. So yeah, he crashes in the desert and it's the Tharks find him and they bring him back to the village and he finds out that off screen Tal Hodges, the Hayden Christensen, Hayden Christensen, uh, <laughs> Thomas Hayden Church. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I missed him. Like he was in it. He is, uh, he has challenged Tars and uh, become Jeddak. Uh, so Tars is in prison. Tars is pissed at John. They're, they're, they're sort of squabbling. And, um, and at one point, um, Tars says to him, they're being led out into the arena and, and John's basically like, all right, well, yeah, we'll, we'll win this fight. And his, and Tars says, your spirit annoys me. Good line. Anyway. So then we get the big arena scene, which is sort of, this was really highlighted in the trailers and the crux of it is these two, uh, our two heroes are pitted against two giant white apes. And, um, you know, so they're these big four-armed ape-like creatures, but I believe they don't have eyes, so they're blind. So that you know, oh. puts them a little bit at a disadvantage. Again, the movie doesn't really communicate this effectively. I think this scene would really, really have been impactful if it didn't play as a rehash of the arena scene in Attack of the Clones. Yep. Yeah, totally. I mean, it really looks almost exactly the same. Mm -hmm. They're they're chained in the Attack of the Clones. They're sort of chained to these pillars, and they they do the same thing here. There's like it's it's way too close to that scene, and it's like. I think it's kind of a better scene from a structural level, but mm. it's just so you can't not think of that scene, you know? Like, yeah. It's like they use the same CG set, you know, yeah. they just like re-render the same thing and switch out the characters and it, and even just the, the, the insect, like, you know, audience is the same. It's, it's so many things are similar. You got to evolve with what's happened and like, oh, we can't do that because it's been done. You can't just yeah. do it. You know, you mm -hmm. got to take these things into consideration. And like every single person who is going to see John Carter definitely saw Attack of the Clones. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, they won't remember that scene. Right. Exactly. I mean, uh, I like this is an exciting part. They fight the apes again. They mention the apes, but they're not really set up. You know, like there's not I, I don't know. Like, I get it. They come out. They're big. They fight. I like when he like breaks the rock off and he's like swinging around like a morning star, you know, yeah, I love that. But this is one of those scenes that like, I feel like you could actually mostly just remove it from the movie and it doesn't really change much. Yeah. I understand that it, it changes what happens with the leader of the tribe or whatever. But like, I also obviously thought of attack of the clones. And I think this is an example of where the movie kind of lacks a certain kind of style, you know, like it's all competently shot, but Again, it's like I've seen so much of this yellow Mars dirt planet that this is just like one more setting after like an hour and 45 minutes, right? Like this yeah. would have been much more impactful like if it were like a, a like a, an underground dungeon fight with like 
yeah. green torches and shit, you know? Right, and mm-hmm. just something like that would have been enough to differentiate it from the Attack of the Clones scene. You know what I mean? Like, just one sort of change of of the setting. Like, yeah, yep. if it had been underground, that would have been great. And it would have been, mm-hmm. you know, that you can explain that you don't see the white apes because they live underground. Yeah, and they, they don't need sight, yeah. Right, then that would make sense as to why they were blind. Yeah, we should have written this movie, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some things that happen here that I, I think are pretty fun. I like uh, the way he kills the second ape. With, it basically falls on him and he ba- cuts his way through it really yeah. gru- gruesomely. <laughs> and, and you know, for a Disney film, and he sort of comes out of the ape and he's all covered in blue blood. And then Tal Hodges, he calls out Tal Hodges to, to fight him. And so Tal Hodges gets up and leaps down into the arena and he just John Carter leaps at him and just cuts off his head. They don't even, it was kind of like the Indiana Jones uh, in the temple of doom moment where the swordsman comes out and Indiana Jones just shoots him. He's like literally covered from head to toe in blue blood after yeah, like carving the ape in half. And then he just whacks the dude's head off again, no blood on the head whacking, but like, I was like, are you sure Disney made this movie? Like, <laughs> this is really inappropriate content. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it bothered me, and it is rated PG-13. I just couldn't couldn't get past the fact that it's a Disney movie, and he chopped the yeah. dude's head off. Yeah, it's brutal for, for a PG-13 movie. I, the thing, obviously, that's softening the blow is that these aren't humans. That's all. I mean... That's how they get away with it. Yeah, that's fucked up, though, because the those are actual people that I've come to know. Right. You know I, mean? I agree. I agree. <laughs> but in terms of the the actual moment where he kills him, I thought that was like really cool because I did think they were going to fight and John Carter just fucking kills him in one in one blow. And I was like, all right, we're, I guess we're done with that guy. And so John Carter takes the title of Dotar Sojak. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is the the one I mean look a lot of these names are are baffling and distance you from enjoying the movie but I feel like this is the one that really like you might have made it past uh like Jeddak you might as well made it you might have made it past Tars Tarkas but I feel like Dotar Sojak is the moment where people are like throwing up their hands and they're being like all right fuck it I can't I can't do this anymore come on we're leaving get your popcorn we're leaving <laughs> Like, but mom there's only an hour left <laughs> but anyway so john is uh declared dotar sojak and that allows him to take command of the thark army and you know he's <laughs> he's turned a corner on this helping out deja thing and he's gonna fight the uh the zadangans you know they go on this big ride to zadanga and you're like okay we're gonna get a big battle here but nope they fake you out they get to Zadanga and there ain't nobody home. They're all, they've all gone to Helium, which looks exactly like Zodanga and for the wedding. I was like, I don't even know why we're doing this. Like, why don't, why don't they just go <laughs> yeah. where they need to go? Like, how is this irrelevant? How does this make the movie better? They got confused and went to the wrong place. I think what it does is just it makes it so that John's got to go on on his, on his own. Mm-hmm. He flies to Helium on one of the those airships Mark Strong Thurn told John earlier that the marriage is a sham and that uh, McNulty is just going to kill Deja. So that's really what's motivating him to to go save her. Yeah, but I don't I don't understand that at all, because like 
if McNulty's just like this like rampaging warlord who's trying to kill everyone, then what what is his ruse of like his plan is like, no, 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 like I'll totally marry you and then I won't kill you. But once we're married, I'm going to kill you and just do what I was doing earlier anyway. So yeah. how is this beneficial? Well, it still melds the two humans together, like societies together because they're married. Right. So I would assume that does was it point. I mean, you would think all bets would be off, though. It wouldn't be like, well, sorry, they got married. Right, We've got it. Like, right. I think people would be a little bit pissed. You They'd know? be pretty like, pissed that they killed the princess. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it's literally like the dumbest fucking plan I've ever heard of. I mean, unless the answer is just that, like, McNulty really wants to bang this girl one time and then carry <laughs> on with his plan. If that's the answer, okay, Disney, that fits with everything else you put in the movie. Well, you should have said, like, blamed her death on, you know, the other guys. And that way, you know, further so mistrust. I don't know. Yeah. That it, it isn't even his plan because he's going to kill her right there. Or to, and maybe mm-hmm. he changes his plan and decides to kill her as soon as John Carter shows up. It sounds like something they just did to up the stakes. Like, just oh, he's going to kill her right away. And, right. Yeah. Makes no sense. Right. It's not that, like, by getting married, there's some kind of, like, planetary law that means everyone has to be peaceful. Right. He actually just is proposing a bargain. And he's like, if you marry me, we'll stop attacking. So yeah. actually, consecr- just, like, having the marriage completed doesn't actually change anything whatsoever. Hence, right. the entire plot of the movie does right. not make sense. <laughs> like, I feel like an intern could have given that note in coverage when it was a script. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And the answer would have been Andrew Stanton saying, but guys in the book, that's what happens. Right. <laughs> right. I will say I, I liked the marriage ceremony. I liked the drinking out of the glass thing. I thought it was a cool touch. They have this like special chalice and like they each have to hold it. And I don't know. Watch the movie if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the implication there, which Dune definitely uh, drew from this, was that, you know, water is so scarce there that it's this, this sacred thing right. to, to drink wa- the, the water. But it, it's a cool they, It's The ceremony itself is actually kind of designed in a cool way. I, I like it. You know, and overall, aside from the sort of boring desert stuff, I do like the, the general design of the movie. I think it's it's pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, John shows up and there's this big climactic fight. A lot of pieces moving around, but basically it's just, you know, a fight in the chapel or whatever the hell it's called, the sept or whatever, wherever the ceremony is taking place. And it's clearly a big set. Um, you know, I remember I watched some behind the scenes stuff and there was a lot of footage of this climax and, you know, all these people kind of running around the set and doing all this stuff. John's fighting... Uh, McNulty and the Therns are there and they're kind of morphing into different people and then the Tharks show up and they're messing stuff up. Did this get a little bit confusing to you guys? Yeah. Oh my god, totally. I I literally I know I saw it. I know I did. But I ha- <laughs> literally at the end of the movie I turned to my wife and I said, "What happened to McNulty? Like did we see him die?" And she had to like explain to me what I saw because I had no idea what was going on in this sequence. Uh, you're lucky that you had a, your wife there because I watched it by myself and I think I had no one to turn to to say what the <laughs> hell just happened because I did watch it like probably uh, six hours ago and I still can't remember. Wow. that's Yeah, Jen, Jen wouldn't even be in the same room with me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, one thing that I, I will say about this, this whole wedding scene is it reminded me of the 1980 Flash Gordon because that ends with Ming and... Dale, right. uh, almost getting married. I'm I'm fond of that movie, so 
you know, that made me kind of, I could appreciate what they're trying to do. It was like a big budget Flash Gordon. Uh, okay, okay, one thing that, one development here is that Sab Fan can kind of fly or something suddenly. Because he's like flying around, I mean, McNulty. McNulty can kind of fly, and so John's jumping, he's flying. And then what happens is that like John gets McNulty down on the ground, and then like the Thern guy makes the magic weapon go up to McNulty's face and like he basically kills him with the weapon. It's really strange and makes no sense. I remember that McNulty's like face turns blue and his head like caves in. Yes. But like why that happened, I don't know other than you just explained it. And two, what's with this fucking weapon that has no point in the entire movie? Like the movie, the first thing you see is like this magic blue laser that like he barely uses. Right. And yeah, so I what I think is going on is that like, you know, Mark Strong, the Thern is like, well, my boy lost. So I'm not going to let John Carter have that thing. So <laughs> I'm going to ma- have it. I'm going to make it kill McNulty. And and then the, the Thern starts changing into different people like he changes into Deja, like, you know, right. at one point. And yeah, I mean, I I just watched this yesterday or whatever. And yeah, it's really hard to sort of pay attention to what's going on, even though it's not poorly shot or edited or anything. It's just there's so many things that don't matter that you just stop being able to follow it because you're, you're no, you don't know what you're really supposed to be following. Like, like you said, it's like, am I following the blue weapon? Am I following the Tharks, the Therns? Like, what am I supposed to really be focusing here on? Yeah, the dominoes don't fall in, like, the correct order of, you know, which baddie to take down first. You don't really feel any inevitability to what's happening. It just kind of just happens. I mean, it even sort of just ends. It ends on this moment where the Thern has turned into John Carter. So there's two John Carters. And he's right at... Tars Tarkas has two swords on him, so he but he's hesitating because it's his friend John Carter. But then the other John Carter is jumping across the room, and you know, and so Tars looks up and he sees this other John Carter, and then the real John Carter comes down, but the Thern disappears before he gets there, and so John Carter lands right where the th- the Thern John Carter was, and he's right in between Tars's swords. And Tarz's sword sort of touches his throat and there's like a little nick of blood. And then they're like, we won. <laughs> and you're like, how is that? When are you winning? Yeah. Like, you're like, you didn't win. The bad guy got away. And it, yeah, you, you don't register that anybody's won. You're like, what do you yeah. mean you won? Anticlimax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's an excellent, that's a great way to put it. Suddenly they're like, you won. And I was like, wait, when did you win? Well, how? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like. Like, basically, one bad guy killed the other bad guy, and then he ran away, and then they all celebrate. And and that's all, like, this is just, like, basic. The very bottom of the barrel in terms of basic storytelling in an action movie is, like, yo, you gotta have, like, McNulty and John Carter have, like, a beef. They yeah, gotta fucking yeah. have some scenes together. I know, like, there there's a scene er- earlier in the movie, but, like, they are not at odds with each other. McNulty's yeah, yeah. just, like, doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the same goes for the Thurn guy. He like no one has a problem with John Carter, so it's yeah. not really satisfying to watch John Carter fight any of these people. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for Mark Strong Thurn to have a real issue with John Carter, other than, 
Like you'd almost think that he would be like, wow, this, this is an interesting ring. If that's what they do is right. play with things. Like, why isn't he like, Hey, you know what? Fuck this McNulty guy. Let's give the magic blue yeah. thing to John Carter. Cause he's already super powerful. This will get really interesting. You know, like now we've got a Superman with a super weapon. Let's see what happens then. Yeah. Like, why not do that? Well, that's the problem with their nebulous motivation is that it doesn't pay right. off at the end. That's when you're like, oh, that might be interesting as a concept in the middle. But then when you get to the end and nobody cares that these people lost or what they even wanted, then the movie falls apart. So, well, and I think they're trying to set up stuff for sequels. Yeah. Mistake, mistake. Yeah. Right, but you're just so kind of you don't even you're not even think you don't even have that feeling when you're watching a movie and they do that and you're like oh fuck you you're setting up that. another movie yeah right but this doesn't make you feel that way because you're so confused <laughs> that you don't even get that that's what they're doing right <laughs> you know what I mean like you're not it's not obvious it's just there be it's something you think about later and you're like oh maybe they were just saving that uh, this for something else you know but it's like. In the movie itself, you don't feel like, oh, they're setting up a sequel. But I think they definitely were. They were definitely leaving threads open for a sequel. That would be. Yeah, happen. they were planning a trilogy. Yeah, supposedly. But you're right. It doesn't like it. The ending of this movie feels complete. Like it feels like the movie's over. I see how there could be more. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like the, it, it didn't end on that. Like, wait, the movie. It didn't end in an unsatisfying way. I know I'm jumping slightly ahead, but so. John Carter's basically like, well, sorry, Deja, that I crashed your wedding, but we can get married now. And so she's she's down with that. So they just go right into them getting married. Um, and so they get married and they bone down for one night, apparently. And then John's out sort of staring at the stars, thinking about Earth. But he's not going to go back. He's 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 happy where he is. And then he basically goes to go back to bed and uh, Mark Strong shows up. And says the magic words and sends him back to Earth. And so we get now, we're back in the framing story. We learn that he's ported back to the Cave of Gold and Brian Cranston's skeletal remains are in the, the cave with him. But he's got the gold. The gold was there, like he said all along. And so he takes all of that gold, turns it into money that he puts towards this 10-year-long search for another amulet to send him back to Mars. It's all done in voiceover and you're seeing your montage of him, you know, digging out mines or whatever. And they sort of imply that he's found an amulet in the mines or whatever. So like his body is being kept in this mausoleum on the grounds of his mansion. And so Ned rushes out to the mausoleum. He figures out that the key to get in is pressing his name in this sort of, uh, signage over the mausoleum door and it opens up and wait john carter's not in there like he said he was and then behind uh ned is a thern who comes up who's like a victorian gut dude but it's really a thern he comes up to ned and then he gets shot from behind by john carter because this was all john carter's plot to get another amulet and it was all just a big setup where he used ned to get him an amulet. I really didn't like all the, like the, the Burroughs as a character thing, but I understand that's how the book is also. Apparently the book, correct me if I'm wrong, is like in the same thing. Like Edward yes. Burroughs is like, 
yo, I knew this guy named John Carter and he went to Mars and let me tell you about it. But the other thing you skipped over, the the dumbest part in the entire movie, which is after he gets married, he decides to throw away his amulet. Yeah. He he right. he has spent the entire fucking movie trying to get this amulet so he can get back to Earth. And now that he's won, he's like, ah, I don't need this fucking thing. I'm just going to hurl it like 10 miles into the desert. And I'm sitting there. She's that good. And huh? I, she's that good. But I'm like, hey, yo, motherfucker, put it in a safe, put yeah. it in a drawer. Like, what if you need it some other day, you stupid idiot? And then three minutes later, he gets <laughs> he teleported <needs> <laughs> back to Earth. <laughs> and uh, that was that was so dumb. I don't care if that happens in the book or not. You got to change that shit. I did kind of like the goofy reveal that like he this entire thing was like a, a like the world's longest con job to like lure a thern there and then shoot him in the back. I was like, OK, sure. At least at least you have made an effort to make this all tie together. And this goes on for like, a, I don't know, probably 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you're like, this movie needs to be over. But we're yeah. doing like this. I mean, I think there's too much in the beginning framing. I think the framing sequence is just too much like cut that down like cut that down to like four scenes total you know like yeah. does not need to be like 20 minutes of framing story absolutely nobody's here to see this no nobody's here to see period piece taking place in the 1800s about a freaking finding a magic cave and crap like <laughs> no one's here for this we want like you know swashbuckling science fiction pulp action we mm-hmm. don't want this this is not what we're here for and it's fine for it to be there but not this much of it it needs it needed to be cut way down completely agree so yeah so he takes the, his amulet he goes into the to the mausoleum he lies down on the the altar and he says the magic words that will take him back to barsoom and take him back to deja and we finally get on screen John Carter of Mars, which is what the movie should have been called. Right. Based solely on the articles I've read, and I imagine depending who you would ask, you would get two different sides of this. But everything that you have a problem with is Andrew Stanton's fault. Like, uh-huh. he insisted that they not call it John Carter of Mars oh, because okay. he views it as an origin story. And right. he only becomes John Carter of Mars at the uh. end. I However, I'm sure that there also were some discussions from the marketing team about calling it whether Mars should be there or not. But like it is called John Carter of Mars. They show the fucking title at the end. So why are you dancing around it? Just call it fucking John Carter of Mars, you fucking idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you lost 80 million dollars because you wanted to pretend like your Mars movie doesn't take place on Mars. What kind of logic is that? <laughs> the Terminator isn't called like one f- bad night in LA, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's called the fucking Terminator. Right. <laughs> I like the idea that he built a, like, because like his body has to remain here. Right. Yeah. I like that. It's like a mausoleum that only he can unlock from the inside or whatever. Like, okay. It's like steampunk avatar. Yeah. He, He's got a lot of faith that like Deja didn't remarry in the 10 years he's been missing. Like they, they, they don't show the post credit sequence where he goes back and like no one wants to talk to him because he he's accused of like leaving her. Let's just move to our closing thoughts. And I want to start with Chris. As a Star Wars fan, were you able to watch this and recognize in it? how Star Wars took it and made it into something that you like. Oh, absolutely. I feel bad for the story that it didn't get made earlier or, you know, 
I feel like everyone mined it. And by the time you get back to it, you're like, what is this, you know, uh, cannibalized story that I've seen a thousand times? It's not the fault of the story, but where we're coming from, it just it just didn't work. It didn't grab me. What, what can I say? You know, I mean, like, I really I feel like I, the first time I, I watched it, I was pleasantly surprised because the pendulum had swung so far. You know, so many people had said that it was garbage and it didn't do well that I feel like, oh, I'll give this movie a shot. Sebastian says it's good and it, and it entertained me enough. And then but then returning to it for a second time really just, you know, um, I was not interested because I had seen all this before and, and watching it a second time didn't make it any better. This is just like an incredibly mediocre movie. But because my expectations were so low because of how much trash talk people have said about it and how much money it lost, the very fact that it was just a competently made movie kind of like yeah. was higher. <laughs> it was already higher than what I thought I was going to get. Right. Uh, I will stand by. I think for the most part, the special effects are really good. Yeah. Again, there's nothing that like is mind blowing to me, but like, I see they spent the money well, like, you know, like the the sets look very good. There's a there's a certain like passion you can taste. You can taste that the director is passionate about this property and he's really trying to convey that story as opposed to someone who's just collecting a paycheck. Right. Like this guy yeah. lo fucking loves John Carter. And I felt yeah. that there was there was a lot to like and it had that good balance of like excitement and fun and comedy. I just found the action scenes are just so mediocre that they don't they don't like pick any Star Wars action scene. Right. It's probably mm -hmm. cool. Even even in like the bad prequel movies, the action scenes are kind of cool. Right. Yeah. But there's nothing like that in this movie. That's that's the big problem. And then the other problem is that, like, they don't give any time to any characters yeah. to, like, actually talk and have character moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to point to Star Wars again, right? Like there's a part where like Luke Skywalker talks to Obi-Wan Kenobi and they talk about his dad and like whatever, right? And and you get yeah. to feel that they're people. And I yeah. never feel like anyone in this two hour, 15 minute movie is a person, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they're just a bunch of like, they're just labels running around like hot princess, <laughs> bad guy, bald alien man, right? And John Carter. Totally. I get why people don't like it. I get why I get why it bombed. It's it's just a very expensive, mediocre movie. Well, obviously, you know, I like this movie. I although I don't think I like <laughs> it as much as I as I sold myself as liking it. What I really like about this movie is that it doesn't at all shy away from the the pulpy roots. I'm I'm, I'm a fan of old pulp stories, and to see one done so true to the original vision of what pulp was that's what i like about it my problems are what you were saying rodney about the characters and i think some of that comes from the basic sort of fish out of water premise because you know john carter can't have these conversations about who his father is and, and or anything with other characters because he's from a friggin' another world that they don't even know and understand. Like the most he can say is like, yeah, we have ships that sail on water or whatever. Like, right. cause he can't. No, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you because. Well, I'm saying that's a bad thing. Oh yeah. He, he easily could, he could say to her, like she could say, have you ever loved a woman before? And he could right. tell the story of how his wife and, and, and da daughter were murdered. Right. Right. Yes. Like, that's a very simple, basic scene that this movie is missing. And that's a problem. And I and I think that that's why this movie ultimately 
failed. I mean, I think there there is there's a there's a few things at play. I mean, I think the marketing was bad. Oh, I so think, bad. I think calling a movie yeah. John Carter isn't going to bring anybody in. <laughs> okay. I think like you said, Rodney, having a guy as your lead who isn't really a star, who's not a box office draw in any way whatsoever, probably not a smart idea for $250 million movie. I think that the mythology is way too hard to follow. Yeah, like, it's and if you're, if you're, you're trying to sell me on this world and that this is going to be this expansive thing. And the, the, you know, I honestly, I don't think the mythology in this works at all. And I think it's really the problem of, of the, of the like script. Did you read the book before the movie or after the movie, after seeing the movie? I think I, I read it before. I think I read the book right before the movie. So in your, in your mind, was there a way better John Carter movie in your mind after reading that book? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Like, I think it could have been a much more imaginatively realized mm-hmm. movie. I mean, the story is the same as this movie. Right. So if you've got problems with the story, you have problems with the original novel. So, yeah, I think the story problems were there. I mean, I wasn't sitting there reading it going, oh, yeah, this is they're going to knock this out of the park. How could mm-hmm. you go wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, like. You know, it, it, I wasn't convinced that, that it was going to be a great movie by okay. reading the book at all. But I, you know, I think you could have made a more imaginative movie. I think you could have made a tighter movie. It didn't need to be the, this dense with the mythology. Yeah. I, I think if you put somebody really charismatic in the lead, you know, you could have drawn people into it. You know, if you had some sort of central performance like Johnny Depp in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's a Disney property. I know he's, you know, kind of his, he's in a bad place right now, but, um, you know, he, he created a character that they were able to build a franchise around, you know, because he was so charismatic. Yeah. I mean, like, look, you want to, you want to cast a kind of unknown in your lead. That's fine. But then you need to fill out the rest of the cast with famous people, right? Yeah. Like Pirates of the Caribbean is a great example. That movie is just like fucking packed with stars, right? Yeah. It also is like, it's got a complicated kind of magic mythology to it with like the, the curse, the, the, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, I see how they're very similar. They're both over two hours long, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But there's something about pirates that obviously worked and something about John Carter that didn't. And I think one is that Pirates of the Caribbean takes the time to make you care about the people that yeah. it's so weird that the guy who made Wally and yeah. finding Nemo didn't take the time to make me care about anyone. And that's what, it, that's all a movie is. Like if you stop caring about the character, now you're just watching a bunch of fucking bullshit and flash in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what John Carter is. It's a bunch of expensive bullshit just flashing. Yeah. And I mean, I just think, I also think that it just, the, the whole concept was too archaic for mainstream audiences to embrace like for a guy like me that's going to be appealing but i can fully understand that it's not going to be appealing to most people even other genre nerds and you know they didn't do anything to sort of update it in a meaningful way that it would would grab people i mean i think maybe it would have been better if he had been a modern person Mm -hmm. and what would that have meant? You know, like this modern guy suddenly wakes up on Mars. Like, how can I be on Mars? I know what Mars is and this isn't Mars. And, you know, you could have gone. There's all sorts of places you could have gone 
to take this idea and to have done something that would have been more modern and not as just sort of caught in the weird place and time that it is where it's massively influential, but it's so old that everything's been basically taken from it and put into something more popular. So, and I can see why it took so long to make it because I'm sure this was the sort of thing that came up every time, yeah. you know, they were like, yeah, you know, I get it. This is what star Wars did and blah, blah, blah. But uh, do we need this? <laughs> you know, like, are people clamoring for well, this? When they and, saw Avatar yeah. pull in a billion dollars, that's when they were right. like, oh, yes. yeah, dust off that John Carter thing and give that a whirl. Really, the only reason it, it exists, I think. And it didn't create a, a world that was exotic and interesting enough to for people to want to see it to begin with, but then to go back and, I, like, nobody was saying, I want to live on Barsoom. Right, yeah. <laughs> nobody was getting depressed that they couldn't spend more time in the Utah desert. When you speak of, like, the pulpy roots, I feel like I want to see this movie done but with only the special effects available from like the 1950s or maybe the special mm -hmm. effects only available in the 1980s and just kind of like para strip away all the sort of cg nonsense i almost want to like strip it back and and bring it visually back to those roots as well like even that would be i feel like right more exciting to me you're you're kind of hitting a really important point because it's like the movie in every way feels like it should be this like much smaller budget from 1957, you know, like it feels like it should be an episode of mystery science theater 3000. Right. So it's like that in every regard, except for the budget, which is so high <laughs> yeah. that you're watching this like really expensive movie that feels like it shouldn't be this, it shouldn't be this flashy. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's not that visually dazzling. Really. <laughs> yeah, which is weird. It's a bad combination. You know, we don't have to talk about Jupiter ascending, but like, at least when you watch that, yeah. that's bad too. But you're like, I see where the money went. And at least they were trying to be imaginative, yeah. right? Yeah. Whereas in this one, I'm like, it's literally like almost all just yellow desert. And there's like one city set that kind of gets reused a bunch. Yeah. And a couple of flying ships, I guess. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like with those other movies that are almost visual, I thought of Jupiter Ascending as well. And I feel like I had a better time watching that in Gods of Egypt where they just freaking go for it. You know what I mean? You might as well, if you're going to give me this, you know, have this money and, and dazzle me, at least those both of those movies like went places that were new and unique as opposed to this was being beholden to the book so much. If you're going to waste my time with this nonsense, at least like really dazzling. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like give me big nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. But all that, all that said, I love this movie. Good for, anyway, good for you, so, Sebastian. I'm happy for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I look, you know, I'm, I'm, I think my, my time with John Carter, I'll probably only watch this like seven more times before I Wait, die. How many times have you, how many times have you seen it to date? Uh, I think this is my fifth. What the fuck, man? <laughs> well, but sometimes I just throw things on to have in the background as right. eye candy. I don't always give it my 100% of my attention. This is like maybe the fourth time I've really watched it. What if Avatar 2 comes out and is such a smashing success that they green light John Carter 2? <laughs> You'll be excited, right? And we'll do this podcast again. Oh, hell yeah. Look, if they make a John Carter 2, I'm 
going to be the only person there <laughs> opening weekend. COVID or no COVID. Honestly, I got to tell you, if you just want to go get the rights to John Carter, they're available now. Like <laughs> for like $10, they can be yours. All right. Well, I think that probably wraps it up for our discussion. Um, I want to thank you, Rodney, for rejoining us here at Tentpole Drama. Thanks for having me back. It, this was a blast again. Cool. Glad to hear that. And uh, Chris, yeah, thank you for enduring this movie. This I, was a f- more fun two hours than watching that movie. So we, I, it was a good time. Uh, you know, I'm just going to declare myself a Dotar Sojak and uh, lead a raid on Helium. And I'll talk to you guys later. Right, sounds good. Yeah. Later. Bye. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.